Trump's big day tomorrow. Is this the scariest day for the rest of the world? Should we really be frightened of Trump? The countdown has begun. This time, tomorrow, businessman, reality TV star and now politician Donald John Trump will be President of the United States of America. So what does this mean for Britain, NATO and the rest of the world? Well, joining me for the programme today is former BBC diplomatic correspondent, now Master of Peterhouse Cambridge, Bridget Kendall, Professor of International Politics at the University of Birmingham, Scott Lucas, and as usual, BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. So with two months on from the election result, have your thoughts about the president-elect changed since then? Bridget Kendall. Well, you know, when he was first elected, my first thought was, let's just watch and see what happens. Let's see who he puts into his administration. Let's see whether he tones down his rhetoric as the reality of taking office gets closer. And I thought that's what would happen. I thought we would probably see some seasoned diplomat or uh, academic become Secretary of State, that there would be people from the Washington establishment who would people some of the security jobs and so on. And actually, the opposite has happened. Uh, his, uh, the people who's invited into his administration, some of them are extraordinarily radical, and his rhetoric hasn't toned down at all. So it's the exact opposite of what I thought. And you begin to think, is this no longer... I mean, maybe we're not, you well, can't say, oh, well, this could just be a blip on the landscape and all will be back to normal in four years' time. Maybe we are looking at something which could be a historic change, not a return to 1945 when the modern world as we know it with the transatlantic alliance and so on began, but something in the future which is very different from that but which is just as momentous. Mm, Scott Lucas, uh, two months ago, what was your opinion and what is it now? Well, two months ago it was shock and two months later it is uh, <laughs> shock plus concern. Bridget's absolutely right. We are in dangerous, uncharted waters. Uh, we have a man who is unpredictable, I think unstable, who has no coherent sense of foreign policy, who simply throws out thought bubbles on Twitter, which substitute for policy. He has a range of advisors, uh, some of whom I think actually may keep him in check, such as the Defense Secretary James Mattis, others of whom are almost uh, off the edge of the pier alongside Trump, such as his new national security advisor, Michael Flynn. And I think, just to summarize it, we're not talking about uh, returning to the post-1945 world. We're not talking about extending it. We're talking about ripping up the post-1945 world. All those economic, political, and military structures that helped us get through some tough times are now under threat. Christopher Lee, we're in dangerous, uncharted waters. We certainly are. I mean, what we saw uh, on November the 8th, when the election took place, we saw almost a coup d'etat. It was almost as if a non-creature of the establishment or the accepted establishment had walked right the way through and said, well, as soon as nobody else is going to do this, I'll do it, and produced a whole new load of rules, A, which people didn't want to sign up for, and B, they weren't quite sure what they are. But I remember that morning afterwards, um, we did, a, did an assessment of him. I'm not so gloomy. Uh, I, I don't like it. And I know I should like it even less. Uh, but What's I, I'm made not you so less gloomy? Um, one is uh, perhaps, perhaps an exaggerated faith in the Congress to keep 
what can be kept under control. Also, when you're presented with the facts, certainly on foreign policy, people abroad do not change their policies because of the, uh, of the, of the president. We've, we saw that, with, in fact, with, with President uh, Obama. But I cannot take away from my mind the run-up to the election day. What we saw from Mr. Trump was a grotesque performance of how instinct says a man who's going to be president should not behave. And I think that's the one thing that particularly worries me. So what will President Trump mean for Britain? Well, James Hurst has spoken to Dr. Karen von Hippel, Director General of the Royal United Services Institute. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, in, in many respects, it's actually was very smart that Theresa May chose Boris Johnson as Foreign Secretary, because actually I think the two will get along pretty well. Um, and Boris Johnson has already had a, a good meeting with him. Uh, I think Trump knows he needs some good allies. I think he likes this country a lot. In terms of making a deal, a trade deal with the UK, you know, in about a week, I don't think that's actually practical or, or feasible. So, but in terms of the the special relationship, which actually is shown more than anything in military matters, is that relationship going to stay special, or is Donald Trump going to expect us to be a poodle? Well, that's the issue, right? If he starts to take risky military decisions, Britain will need to decide whether or not they want to go along. I mean, I think the positive thing about having Chilcot come out so late is it's still fresh in people's minds. Uh, you know, the British government is very focused on implementing lessons learned from that. And one big lesson is, you know, don't necessarily do things just to support the alliance if the U.S. wants to do it and you don't agree with it. Uh, I mean, people are looking at the 1980s, the Thatcher-Reagan era, and, and drawing perhaps cosmetic comparisons. Are the comparisons cosmetic or are there? It's hard to tell, right, because Margaret Thatcher had a lot of influence on Ronald Reagan, and she was able to get him to do certain things and get him to push certain policies. It's not clear that anyone has that much influence on Donald Trump much less Theresa May, so we'll have to see how it goes when they meet. She's a bit of an introvert. He's overly extroverted. I'm not sure he fully respects women as being his equal, too. There's not a lot of evidence of that as well. So it really remains to be seen how, how that pans out. That was Dr. Karen von Hippel, Director General of the Royal United Services Institute, talking to James Hurst. Bridget Kendall, what do you think President Trump means for the UK? Well, uh, oh, of course, on one score, um, his election is something of a positive for a UK which is contemplating just exactly how it's going to disentangle itself from Europe and all the negative publicity and concerns positive and how? possible uh, financial problems which could result from that. But uh, at the same time, so the Trump presidency diverts attention. It's a kind of, for many people around the world, it's a bigger issue. It's a bigger problem. So it puts the Brexit problem into a certain context. And number two, of course, if um, President Obama said Britain leaving Europe would mean it would go to the back of the queue, Donald Trump is saying the opposite, that he'd like to push for a trade deal much more quickly. Although, as Karen was saying, that 
may not be as quick as he wants. But in many other ways, having an American president who's saying such destabilizing things about the European continent as a whole has to worry Britain too. So if he's disparaging about NATO, he's been disparaging and, and people who speak for him also about the European Union, even though Britain has now an increasingly complicated relationship with its continental partners. It, it, it's not helpful. It's, it's, it's even more worrying to have an American president who's, who's making that whole transatlantic relationship in, in all its manifestations even more uncertain. So uh, does Donald Trump actually have a foreign policy? We've only picked up snippets of his opinions of other countries during the last few weeks, mainly from Twitter, of course. Let's look first at Europe and NATO. This week in an interview with The Times, Mr Trump reiterated his claim that NATO is obsolete. Scott Lucas, he said that because NATO wasn't taking care of terror, as he says. But that's only part of the NATO's job anyway, isn't it? I mean, Donald Trump has no clue about NATO in that its original and still its ongoing uh, duty was to maintain security for North America and Europe. It wasn't to fight terrorists. Um, NATO has wrestled with the difficult problem of out-of-area operations such as Afghanistan because of terrorism. But instead of addressing those questions, Donald Trump is basically saying, I'm going to pick up our ball and go home. And he hasn't only done that, he's done it by insulting longtime allies. For example, the insults that he fired at Chancellor Merkel of Journal in the, uh, Germany in the past few days. And let's just be clear about this, and Bridget will know this very well, being a Russia specialist. He's tearing apart NATO using the same language that is being put out right now by the Russian President Vladimir Putin, that NATO is not necessary, that it is obsolete, that it is out of date. Now at a time when we have ongoing questions about the future of Eastern Europe, the Baltic states, as well as the Middle East, that does no one any good in terms of providing for security. Mm, Bridget, he's made it clear he thinks that European countries should be paying more for defence. Last week, US troops arrived in Poland to defend against uh, perceived Russian aggression. Do you think President Trump will keep them there? Well, if it's just that he thinks countries should be paying bigger contributions, I think there are a lot of people who'd support him in that. We've heard that from uh, British politicians, from other members of the American establishment. This is a long-standing chorus that, apart from a few countries, Britain among them, most Europeans don't pay what they ought to. Uh, and actually, if you have the American president making the case a bit more forcefully, that might make them respond to that. That's not a bad thing. The worry is just as we heard just now from Scott, is that much of his language uh, uh, and, and the way that he's undermining NATO isn't just to make it operate better so that the Allies contribute more so that it can equip itself better in order to secure future, a future for Europe. He seems to be saying, what's it there for? And much of his language does indeed seem to be, it's almost as though it's a script written for him in the Kremlin. And that <laughs> raises a very big question, because after all, what was NATO invented for? The security threat that was there when it was first established was the Soviet Union, Russia. And if he's now using the same language as the former adversity to ask very fundamental questions about the point of NATO, it does make you think, what exactly is his vision for the United States' future role in the security of Europe? And most, most importantly, what exactly does his policy towards Russia amount to? Christopher Lee, what do you think his vision is for the future security of Europe? Well, um, uh, when, when the man says it's obsolete, this doesn't mean, say, cr uh, scrap it. I can remember, I suppose, since 1963, since Lyndon Johnson, uh, every single American president supported by 
as uh, Scott was saying, or supported by the, the British have been saying, NATO doesn't do it, ought to do more, etc. And, and all this thing about, you know, you're not spending enough money. When, uh, when the general starts to look, as Defence Secretary look, starts to look, and I'm sure he has actually, of what you spend money on, it's not the fact that you spend 2%, it's what you spend it on. If you look, for example, at Turkey, Turkey is a big spender, but 43, 43.7% of the money is spent on paying people's wages because that's the sort of thing they have to do in that, in, in, in that army. Um, the, the, the Italians, 18% of their budget is spent on support and logistics, and the Germans are just having to start a big spending increase over, over five years, it's almost like 66%. So it is, it is not a question of people who are just sort of sitting there and, and actually doing uh, uh, no, nothing at all. And then you come back to the basics which concern the United Kingdom. Uh, for example, we always go on about you know, the special relationship. Well, the special relationship comes out when it's special. You know, when you need something, that's, that's then an, a special relationship, just as it was, for example, for the British in 1982 and the Falklands. Although unsaid at the time, the Americans climbed into the special relationship, and that is, the, and, and Tony Blair, obviously at a later date, did something very similar. And I think that is the way we ought to look at perspective. And I've got no doubts. Listen to uh, David Richards, the former uh, uh, CDS of the United Kingdom. Uh, he's got no doubts either that the new Defence Secretary in the United States is a smart, smarter, a smarter cookie than people sort of imagine. And even his nickname is something which he got when he was a cadet. Hmm. Uh, Professor Scott Lucas, um, Bridget was talking just before about uh, the kind of things that Donald Trump's been saying sound like almost like a script from the Kremlin. What do you think the emergence of these two super egos in Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin is going to have on the world order? I think it's already destabilized politics and thus has the potential to destabilize the world order. Uh, but in the past few years, uh, we're not just talking about the possibility of military confrontation. We're talking about a battle which has been based on misinformation, disinformation, influence operations, uh, which have concerned, for example, the Ukraine, have concerned, for example, Syria, uh, and have concerned, for example, the Baltic states. Now, whether or not those influence operations that Russia carried out extended to intervening in the U.S. election and supporting Trump, and I believe they do, whether or not they extended to that, we're talking about relations or even a, a contest across multiple fronts. And Donald Trump, I honestly believe, simply wants to be like Vladimir Putin. He knows that Putin is a strong man who gets to bully, intimidate his way. Trump exhibits those same types of behavior. What I'm wondering, is, as Christopher alluded to, is whether we see an immediate battle within the American administration where someone like General James Mattis, Mad Dog Mattis at the Pentagon, says, Mr. Trump, you can't do this. This isn't the way you conduct international relations. And where the Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, who is Exxon CEO, his main interest was just getting oil business with the Russians, where does he stand? I think that division within the administration and where it winds up is going to be an extremely important battle on U.S.-Russian relations and therefore U.S. relations with Europe and with Britain. Stay with us. Well, we've just been joined by Britain's former ambassador to Washington, Sir Christopher Mayer, all a bit different back in the late 90s, but the two fundamental dilemmas for the ambassador remain the same. Uh, good to speak to you today. How does the British ambassador go about selling the UK to the new president and his team? Well, first of all, there's a massive uh, storage of goodwill um, and mutual experience that goes back decades. Um, so you're not starting with a blank sheet of paper. Um, even Donald Trump knows about uh, the history of the relationship with the United Kingdom and has already shown in some of the things he said that he is well disposed 
towards us. So selling the UK is really another way of saying, let us examine the great foreign policy issues of the day. Let us identify where we are in agreement and let us identify where it looks like we may diverge and then try to influence the new administration to move in our direction rather than, than in the other. So, but in the end, the end of the day, it's only the Prime Minister that can really do that. So just talk me through it. How, how does that first meeting go? First meeting between the Ambassador and the President. Indeed. Well, that is likely to be in the company of the Prime Minister. Uh, I mean, when I was in Washington and we had a brand new president in the shape of George W. Bush, whom not an awful lot of people knew, I had already met George W. when he was governor of Texas, so he was not uh, um, a new personality for me. Um, I don't know whether our present ambassador in Washington ever met Trump uh, when he was simply a businessman up in New York City or down in Florida. Um, so unless something happens to throw you together before inauguration day, your likely first meeting with the president as ambassador uh, will be when your prime minister comes over, unless you run into each other at some ceremonial occasion. So how does the British ambassador stop the prime minister from running the US-UK policy over his head, or is it just in inevitable? Well, the British ambassador doesn't stop that. <laughs> if the Prime Minister chooses to do whatever he or she wants to do, the British ambassador certainly doesn't stop them. Prime Minister is at the apex of the government and what he or she wants goes. Actually, the question is not... I wouldn't actually phrase the question that way. I would say to the Foreign Office and to the Foreign Secretary, how do you, Boris, ensure um, that the Prime Minister doesn't seize the juicy bits of British foreign policy away from you, which is what, of course, Tony Blair did and what Margaret Thatcher did in her time. And to be frank, it's what um, prime ministers do generally mm. with the most important issues of foreign relations. And just briefly... That includes relations with the United States. Just briefly, Sir Christopher Mayer, just supposing you got your old job back, what would you say to him the first time you met Donald Trump in the Oval Office? I would say congratulations, Mr President, uh, may I tell you that my Prime Minister, Theresa May, is much looking forward to working extremely closely with you, and I hope that the two of you get on very well. <laughs> Meanwhile, I stand ready to do whatever I can <laughs> to advance the British-American relationship. Ever the diplomat, Sir Christopher Mayer, former British Ambassador to Washington, thanks for joining us today. Uh, well, let's continue with our look at what President Trump could mean for the rest of the world. We looked at Britain, Europe and Russia. Now let's move on to the Middle East, starting with Syria. Bridget Kendall, what is President Trump likely to do about Syria? Will he leave the Russians to it? Well, it's a slight puzzle because on the one hand, he says so-called Islamic threat is the biggest threat. It's not Russia. We should look at these Islamic terrorists and that, that they're the ones who need to be dealt with. Uh, on the other hand, his general tenor has been that the United States didn't do well to get involved in wars in the Middle East over the last 10, 15 years. So he doesn't want to do more of that. Does this amount to leaving the Russians to it? On the face of it, it might seem possibly, but of course it's not just the Russians. Also in there 
uh, as very key allies and providing them with their troops on the ground to support uh, the Syrian army are the Iranians and mm. Hezbollah. And Iran is another country where uh, Mr. Trump has made it sound as though he wants to challenge them and possibly challenge the nuclear deal. So that very much complicates, I think, what he might decide to do in Syria. It doesn't make you think he just really hasn't thought it through. Yes. On that subject, Christopher Lee, do you think he's going to scrap the nuclear arms agreement with Iran? Um, and, and I think he might be persuaded, not yet. It is something uh, which, in, in an old time, uh, permanent secretary might have said that's a very brave decision, Mr. President. I'll tell you an interesting part of this: the whole relation in the Middle East. When something unexpected, unexpected turns up, and that's when the president has to have the best people around him, as President Obama said yesterday. I'll give you an, an idea. Yesterday, the Turks, the Turkish Air Force, and the Russian Air Force ran a combined strike operation into Syria. What happens when that gets a very close operational uh, uh, operational idea and we find that Russia is using a Turkish base? Turkey is a NATO member. That would be unprecedented, and that is the sort of thing that the people around him have got to say, right, this is something we hadn't planned, we hadn't examined, Mm. Uh, what are we going to do about it? And that's when you get an idea of what policy is about throughout a region like the Middle East. Interesting times. Scott Scott Lucas, what about Israel? Obama largely ignored it. What about Donald Trump? Well, we've got a triple problem. Um, The first problem is that Donald Trump doesn't really know the basics of the Middle East. He doesn't even know the difference between Syria and Iraq. Uh, Secondly, the U.S. is already on the sidelines uh, because of the Syrian conflict. It's been pushed to the side by Russia and Turkey and really is only there because it's supporting the Kurds. But third, on Israel specifically, here's what's troubling. To deal with a problem of Israel and Palestine, which has been one that we've had to wrestle with for 70 years, Donald Trump has not turned to the diplomats. He's not turned to anyone that experienced. He just said, my son-in-law, Jared Kushner, a real estate developer, he'll go solve the problem. Hmm. Um, we already had a very difficult position where Israel-Palestinian negotiations are suspended, where Syria is intersecting with that uh, suspension, and Trump has just shown no idea of the complexity of that, and instead has reverted to his default position, which is, I'll just turn to my friends and family, and they'll magically solve it. Mm. Now, if we read what is in the papers and what's to believe, President Trump has real issues with China and globalisation. Bridget Kendall and Professor Scott Lucas still here, of course. Um, Trump's problem with China is all about business, isn't it, Bridget? Well, it is and it isn't. It goes beyond that. But it certainly starts with business and the intertwining of the Chinese and American economies. But um, it's another part of this reordering of the world, which is just as fundamental and just as worrying in some ways as Mr. Trump's new thoughts about Europe. So on the one hand, he's saying... Well, on the one hand, he's saying Russia should be an ally that we can work with and Europe's not pulling its weight and maybe the US isn't as interested in it as it used to be. But the other thing he's saying is that um, China maybe isn't such a good partner for the United States and he's kind of hinting at a trade war. But as I say, it goes beyond the economic basket because issues with Taiwan are not just about the economy. This is absolutely fundamental to China. It's one China policy. The question of whether the US might end up challenging it 
uh, in security terms over the South China Seas, and then looming there that problem which everyone hopes won't explode, but this would be exactly the time when it might explode when everyone's distracted is North Korea, which could really bring China and the United States face-to-face in a security confrontation about what would happen to that peninsula. Scott Lucas, um, Barack Obama's made a strategic pivot towards the Pacific, even putting US troops in Australia. What do you think Donald Trump will do there? I got no clue. <laughs> That's what's <laughs> worrying, because because Bridget's absolutely right that that even in the Obama period, we've had periods where you know this cooperation has been marked by fencing for power. Think about the conflict in the South China Sea, for mm-hmm. example. So what Trump does as president-elect is make this phone call or receives this phone call from the Taiwanese president, which was set up by lobbyists, which completely breaks four decades of how you deal with the Chinese question. And Bridget's right that the knock-on effect of that is to destabilize the way that you contain North Korea. Um, I think China knows that that Trump is a lot of bluster and doesn't want an all-out confrontation. But that makes it, I think, more interesting in that China has levers we haven't even talked about, which is it's the largest holder of U.S. bonds. And if Trump really wants a fight, China can withdraw its support of the U.S. bond market and think about the possible consequences, not just for the U.S., but for the rest of us, if that happens. Okay, um, just before we say goodbye to you, I'm going to be rather mean and give you uh, 30 seconds each, Bridget and Scott, to sort of talk us through the world starting tomorrow. Your thoughts? 30 seconds, Bridget Kendall. Okay, I think things will start well with Russia. I think the people in Russia, in Moscow are already worried because they think he's unpredictable too, that just as we've seen with other administrations where it looks like good friendships to start with, they could end up not being so good towards the end. And similarly with the, uh, that other big part of the triangle with China, they may start badly. Maybe reality will hit Mr. Trump and his friends in the face, as Scott was just saying, and they'll decide they really can't rattle the boat, can't, can't, can't shake the boat with China too much. So where we are now, in three or four years' time, it might look the other way around. Bridget Kendall, former BBC diplomatic correspondent, now Master of Peterhouse Cambridge, thank you for your time today. Scott Lucas, over to you. Russia, with well, the day after tomorrow, the US administration will begin to fight amongst itself. Russia will try to exploit the situation. The Middle East will say America is off to the sidelines anyway. Uh, Europe will try to think about a future without the U.S. at the center, and Britain will be caught floundering at the Atlantic, chasing a mythical trade deal that's not going to happen. Scott Lucas, Professor of International Politics at the University of Birmingham, thank you very much. Well, let's go to Washington now, where final preparations are being made ahead of tomorrow's inauguration. Simon Marks from Feature Story News is there. Simon, good to speak to you. Talk us through what will happen tomorrow exactly. Well, having heard all of that from uh, Scott and Bridget, I'm a little hesitant uh, for the day to dawn. But the day <laughs> will dawn. It is unavoidable. And at high noon on Friday uh, here in Washington, D.C., uh, Barack Obama will cease being president of the United States and Donald Trump will become president of the United States. Before that moment occurs, uh, Donald Trump and his wife Melania will go to the White House. They will be formally met uh, by Barack Obama and Michelle. At that point, the current First family, Barack Obama, Michelle Obama, and their two daughters, Sasha and Malia, will leave the building for the last time with Barack Obama as president. They'll all get into a limousine and drive up to Capitol Hill, where shortly before midday, Donald Trump will be sworn in as president, and just before that, Mike Pence will be sworn in uh, mm. as vice president. It has to happen just before midday because at the stroke of midday, that's the official moment at which the transfer of power 
happens. Mm. Donald Trump is talking about a great weekend of celebration here. There's an inaugural lunch up on Capitol Hill, then a parade back to the White House where perhaps he'll get out of his limo uh, and take a walk and meet some of the people lining the streets. But security is going to be intensely tight because there will be protesters on the streets here mm. as well. And that's just a preview for what's going to happen on Saturday. The Million Women March will be snaking its way through the streets of Washington with people coming here to express their view that Donald Trump is not their president. And uh, Christopher Lee, a pre present by the new president's side will be a thing called a nuclear football. What is this exactly? 30 seconds after midday when he gets the job. The guy goes and stands by him and he's got a small briefcase and it's called the football. In that briefcase are the codes for nuclear release in time of maybe tension, but certainly in time of war. And it's the codes that only the president can use to condone or order the use or the release of nuclear weapons. Now, that doesn't mean to say all the ICBMs are going to take off at once or 7,000 missiles are on their way. It's the principle of going to the next stage of warfare, which would be release of the order to use nuclear weapons. Simon Marks, just talk me through your day tomorrow. What are you going to be covering? Uh, well, every uh, minute uh, of the ceremony, I'm going to be up at dawn. Uh, we'll be actually having people moving into their broadcast positions up on Capitol Hill at 4 a.m. because that's when everything gets locked down for security purposes. Uh, and then here I'll be involved in minute-by-minute uh, -minute live uh, coverage uh, of the events up on Capitol Hill. And mm. not just the events up on Capitol Hill, but also trying to work out where we go from here. Uh, you know, in the last week or so, Kate, uh, th th there has been a distinction between many of the things that Donald Trump has said about his worldview, both in terms of international policy and domestic policy, and, and the views that have been espoused by the men and women that he has selected Simon, to be in his cabinet. We and will have to leave to see it. How that works yeah, we, we will all do, be doing so. So much to talk about. Who knows what we'll be talking about this time next week. Thank you for listening. Uh, join us again this time next week. Bye-bye for now. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2. Warnings.